This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Soyuz Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fakatani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia Sam. How's it going? Very well. How is Mawera land today? Last night, you didn't show up because Jack was whisked off to hospital for falling off his bicycle. Is he okay? Oh, he is. He um, he just got his new bike. And, and we talked about that last week. He just got his new bike, and he just didn't quite factor in that his new wheels are so much bigger, and he treated it like his old bike, and he took this jump and overshot it by two metres, flew through the air, thought he was actually going to die, was pleasantly surprised to find he hadn't, but um, they thought he'd broken his wrist, wrist and... Um, he's very bruised and battered today, but so keen to get back on his bike and um, and just has a sprained wrist. It has not stopped him from using his tablet today, so his mousing ability is not impaired. <laughs> he's very happy about that. <laughs> that is good to hear. And who are we introducing today? Today we have got the first people I've ever known from Tanzania, Becca and Josh. Um, Becca is the uh, founder and director of The Small Things, um, which is an amazing organisation that I'm really excited to hear about. And Josh is the uh, sponsorship and, and communications coordinator, photographer and doer of many things. I think he's maybe one of our special people who wears multiple hats and also alumni from Otago Poly. So uh, welcome to you both and thank you for making the time to share with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah, there's a whole joke in the nonprofit world about other duties as assigned and uh, just how wide of a net that can be. So you, he absolutely <laughs> has lots of other duties signed. So let's start with, with where you are and then we'll follow up with how your bubble life has been because I think you've both had adventures that you weren't anticipating. <laughs> that is so, correct. Absolutely. So can you... <clears throat> Can you give us a bit of an intro as about where you are? Sure. Um, we're in northern Tanzania. Uh, we actually live on the slopes of Mount Meru, um, which is, I believe, like the fifth highest freestanding mountain in Tanzania. Um, and we're about two hours from Kilimanjaro, which is the first most uh, tallest outstanding mountain in the world, um, I think. So... Uh, we're we're in the foothills of Mount Meru, which is just beautiful, um, very lush, uh, a little bit outside of Arusha, which is the city that the main uh, safari routes depart from. So we're about three hours from the start of the national parks, um, and five or six hours from like Serengeti, Ngorongoro Crater, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Wow. Um, and that was- 14-hour drive to Dar es Salaam and then hop across the uh, the water there to Zanzibar if you if you want to go. So Tanzania is a pretty amazing place. 
It's actually, it's interesting. It's, it's the first lived, especially growing up in New Zealand, where I lived, I lived in Dunedin. I was right beside the coast my whole life. And now we're, a, like Becca says, a 12, 13 hour drive away from the nearest ocean. Um, so that's that's one thing that I, I love living here, but that's one thing I've struggled with a bit is just how far it is from the water. So we'll come back to what it is that you do there. But first, how has your bubble life been? Josh will understand what we're talking about with bubbles. Yes. <laughs> uh, mine has been an adventure. Um, it, it has been a series of bubbles in different locations. Uh, Josh's, I think, has been a little bit more low drama, um, but but probably significantly safer than than so, mine. Um, Josh, do you yeah. want to start? Um, so I was actually I was I went on holiday. I left Tanzania back in uh, end of February. I left Tanzania and went on holiday back to Cambodia, um, where just to see some friends there. Um, and it was kind of that point where the whole corona thing happened, it became a big deal, all the airlines started shutting. Um, so at that point, the only way I could actually go was back to New Zealand. I tried, my return flight to Tanzania was cancelled, I couldn't get back here. At that point, I didn't know what it was going to be like in Cambodia. I didn't know what the healthcare was going to be like. I was there on a tourist visa. It was kind of, it was just too risky to stay. Um, so I got a flight back to New Zealand. Um, um, managed to fly through Singapore the day before it shut. So I, I just got back in no time, just in time. Um, turned up, did my did my two weeks of, of isolation, um, which was actually quite comfortable because I ended up staying with my parents. They have like a section of their house that they could kind of lock off from the rest of the house. So I had fresh food delivered to the door and it was <laughs> it was actually quite nice. And I really appreciated this. Um, and then of course, three days after that started, then the whole country went into level four lockdown. Um, so after my two weeks of self-isolation, I was kind of released into the rest of the house um, and could spend time with my family and that was nice. Um, so then I was in New Zealand for six months until fairly recently, um, enjoying our, our level one lockdown, um, going to restaurants, we're kind of without a care in the world. Uh, but that whole time I was trying to come back to Tanzania. Um, so just recently that became possible after several months of cancelled flights and trying to arrange that that process. Um, and I guess we can talk a little bit later about the, the COVID situation in Tanzania, but when I got back, I, I isolated again. It wasn't government mandated. It was kind of a, a thing that I chose to do, or we chose to do. Me mandated. Yeah, it was mandated, <laughs> but mandated fairly. Um, because we work with a lot of people here who kind of immunocompromised or a lot of elderly people and I didn't want to accidentally bring in COVID even though there was very little chance of me having it I mean I got tested before I left New Zealand um, there's still the chance of that I caught it when I was transiting through Doha um, so I, I was in another bubble here uh, for about a week and then when I left I then wore a mask for a, a week further um, but yeah it's been it's been other than those kind of periods where I was where I was isolated, it's been okay. Yeah. But a somewhat surreal the, the experience. The situation in Tanzania is fascinating. Yeah. It was, yeah. I mean, it was it was really surreal, especially the two international trips, because leaving Cambodia at that point, even though everything was shutting down, people still weren't really taking it seriously. Like I remember in the airport when I left, a woman walked past me wearing a mask and a guy in line just like stepped out of line and berated her for wearing a mask back in February. Told her, told her about how it was just a big, a big you know, conspiracy. And I mean, obviously that 
a lot of people still believe that around the world. Well, but the um, American? <laughs> I can't remember, but um, but yeah. So it was still no one was really taking it seriously, except in Phnom Penh Airport. There was one group wearing full head-to-toe boiler suits, um, masks, face shields, um, from China, and I. I bumped into a, friend, a Chinese friend of mine there in the airport, and she was she's working as a photojournalist for Reuters, and she had just been to talk to them. They they had come from Wuhan, and they were trying to get back into Vietnam um, because they'd left a lot of stuff there. I think their jobs were there. They'd been turned around, and they were having to go back to Wuhan via Cambodia. So they were really the only ones taking it seriously because at that point they'd seen firsthand what it what it could do. Um, but then the trip back from New Zealand, I mean, full precautions. Everyone, you know, mandated face shields on planes, mandated masks. It was a very different experience. And surreal in that you are home and feeling safe, but not home. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of it's strange now because I, I mean, New Zealand will always be my home, but I feel a bit like I have multiple homes now because I spent, I spent three years, I think, all up in Cambodia living there. Um, and that that kind of feels like home now as well. So when I left, so I'm constantly leaving one home to another. I left my home in Tanzania to visit my home in Cambodia, and then I was forced out of my home in Cambodia back home to New Zealand. And it's kind of, <laughs> um, yeah, but it's good to be back here. It's good to it's good to see everyone again. It's good to be back on the ground because I was I was working remotely in New Zealand. I was lucky to work remotely for for the small things while I was there, but especially my photography and the, the hands-on work I do, it's just too difficult, too difficult to do it at a distance. So, yeah, it's, it's good to be back and back on the ground. And Becky, you said you had adventures as well. Oh, yeah. Um, so we, my family had been planning already to head back to the U.S. in April and May, respectively. Um, I was going to go a little earlier because I'm there for work uh, as well. And then my husband and our kids were going to follow um, a week or two later uh, so that we could see family and have a little bit of a, of a you know, vacation as well. Um, obviously, that all, you know, became uncertain uh, as, as things got, uh, things developed. And about a week and a half before I was scheduled to leave, uh, Tanzania closed all its airports. So first we were thinking, okay, you know, I, I live in Connecticut, which was at the time experiencing quite a serious outbreak. The New York-centered um, outbreak was was quite serious there. So we figured for a little bit, you know, there weren't any cases reported in Tanzania yet. They were just starting to do, um, to, to appear in Africa more generally. So we kind of figured, all right, Let's wait it out. Let's see what happens, you know, and and um, make a decision when we see how things are going uh, about whether we try to do something. I mean, I don't even know what our options were. There was one evacuation flight uh, to the U.S. that we were unable to get on because my kids and husband are um, residents, uh, legal permanent residents, but not citizens. And they had to prioritize space for citizens. There was so, you know, there were so many citizens that there wasn't space for anyone else. Not that they wouldn't have taken them if there was space. They, I think they would happily have done that. But, you know, under this circumstance, there, there wasn't any. So we thought we were stuck. Um, and things started getting worse in, in Tanzania um, through uh, April and the beginning of May. Um, 
got, you know, the, the country uh, shut all the schools. We went into lockdown at the children's village uh, and um, then the country stopped counting coronavirus cases, which was very concerning, you know, to us at, at that point. Um, so when there was another opportunity to leave the country, uh, we were able to get on an evacuation flight uh, through Qatar. It ended up being a three-day odyssey um, oh, to wow. get from Tanzania to Qatar, from Qatar to Chicago, and then from Chicago to Portland, Oregon, um, which is where my mother uh, and brother were at the time, and and so where we had a place to stay. Um, so so that was was quite something. We ended up being in Portland for uh, about six weeks. Uh, first two weeks, I couldn't even hug my own mom. You know, we were in complete isolation from everyone. Um, and then the next month, we got to spend. You know, we we potted, we bubbled with with my mom and my brother um, and sister-in-law, so that we could spend time with them. Uh, then, <laughs> just to get more fun, um, we so we have a a house in Connecticut that we'd lived in previously and there was a tenant in it until uh, the end of June. Um, so in June, at the end of June, we uh, had to get from Portland, Oregon to Connecticut, which is about as far apart as it's possible to be in the U.S., um, you know, from, from one ocean to another. Uh, so we decided in the end to do a road trip. We felt like we had better control over our exposure that way. Um, and at the time, it, you know, it wasn't really clear what the most serious routes were for exposure. We were very concerned about contact, things like that. Um, so we took a, a 10 day trip, trek across the country. Uh, it was very interesting because Portland, Oregon and Connecticut are both very liberal places. So there was a lot of uh, regulations around mask wearing, a lot of compliance with it. But some of the places we drove through in between were, were a very different experience. Um, so, so it was really fascinating. And then we were in Connecticut for a few months and, and just got back here uh, a few weeks ago, um, as I mentioned. So We're going to take the first of your the music that you've sent us would you like to introduce for us the version of happy that we've got yeah uh this is a really cute song uh the kids really really love it um it was created i think in uh drc in congo uh by a, a an ngo that works with kids there and it's a cover of happy and uh in swahili and it's great
réponds-moi, Mouzouri, si je te demande ton habare. Sourire sur nos lèvres, le jour de gloire se lève. La peur a pris la place, espoir vient prendre sa relève. Trop longtemps qu'on a rêvé, peur, angoisse, on enlève. Peace, love, on relâche, on enterre nos malaises. J'ai un qui nasi, musique qui m'a ta passe. Ça, ça, qui l'a aïno, ta chaise, qui uno, ta casse. Ça, quoi, ni quoi, tout si, ni show. Pillez dans ma flow, comme un coré, puis c'est ma a-a-a. Deux pour la fierté, back to school, on y va avec l'esprit posé. Veni vidi vidi, je suis veni, je l'ai vécu, donc j'ai les vies un petit sourire suffit pour me dire j'ai vaincu. Matatizo ya me kwisha, na ona mabadi liko. Shamisari wanaichunga Mina weye tucheze Leo ni fura viga malinga Kuja nami tucheze Kuja nami tucheze Watutu watu tofurai Watutu watu tofurai Kuja nami tucheze Kuja nami tucheze Kuja nami tucheze Elle guitare mais raconte tant que les pères nous mettent à sourire. Au jour de gens sont fiers car elle compte tant car elle a la fureur. You're the founder of The Small Things. How did that come about? Uh, by accident, really, is is the truth. Um, I was out here in 2010 and 2011. I had just graduated um, from university, and I knew I wanted to go into nonprofit work, but I didn't really know exactly where I wanted to You know, did I want to try and be at the policy of the World Bank? Did I want to be on the ground? Uh, so I was supposed to be in Tanzania for four months, and then in... I think Ecuador, somewhere in South America for four months. Um, 
But shortly after coming here, I, uh, I ended up visiting an, an orphanage um, called Nkuranga Orphanage. And uh, the very first day met actually um, the two kids that would become my daughter and son. Um, and my life kind of went a little bit sideways at that point from what I had planned. Uh, so... <laughs> So I ended up extending and spending a year in Tanzania, um, working very closely with the woman, Mama Pau, who has founded and had been running the orphanage for 20 years already at that point. She now is, you know, the heart and soul of what we do with the small things. Um, And I made a deal with my parents. Um, I was only 23 at the time, and you can't get custody of kids in Tanzania until you're 25. So we made a deal where they said, you know, let's, Let's start a nonprofit. We'll contribute. We'll continue to fundraise and, you know, help support in the next two years. Go to school like you planned. And if you still feel the same way in two years, we'll do whatever we can to help you adopt them. Um, so that's what we did over the next two years. I, I We fundraised for the orphanage and Mama Pendo and I um, had hundreds of, of talks about, you know, her vision for the future and, and what she would do. I basically said, if you had all the money in the world, you know, what does this community need? Um, and her answer was uh, the kids that have family members, um, so many of them could go home with some support of the family. And instead it was, you know, they were being sent to boarding school. They were a lot more money was being spent for, for less positive outcomes. Um, and the kids that really can't go home uh, need need family style homes um, because children were going from the niche to a boarding school and graduating having never lived in their own community um, and and that was just really painful for her to watch uh, when she started the work you know something like a third of the kids ended up passing away after they had to send them back i mean they, this was huge they had made huge progress already over the years the kids were going to boarding school they were physically safe they, created The Small Things, um, which is an organization that focuses on family preservation and reunification. So we've gotten about 30 kids who used to live in uh, in care at home living with their families now, and we continue to support them there. Um, we have about 180 kids uh, that come from families that we've worked with very intensively where they would have entered an orphanage without um, our support. And then we have our children's village, which is uh, loving family style homes um, for up to 45 kids. Right now, I think we've got 42. Um, And they are just the most amazing children I've ever met. I'm a little biased, but but I think they're pretty. and I, yeah, I love love what we do. Um, we're very lucky to be able to do it. That's an awesome thing to be doing. And what's your role, Josh? So I'm working as the as the sponsorship and communications coordinator, um, and also do a lot of photography. So my main kind of day to day role is is essentially working with our donors, working with our sponsors, so that they feel connected, so that they can make a positive impact on the lives of the kids from a distance. Um, they they pay monthly. Uh, they can sponsor a kid through us, um, but the kids just love hearing from them. They have like a two way two way street communication, so they write letters to each other. And we're constantly working on kind of improving how it works. Um, we we're bringing in some new some new options soon for sponsors to communicate with their kids more directly, um, with without supervision, of course. 
Um, but also, I do a lot of um, I do a lot of photography. It's kind of my passion, um, and this is this is really a great opportunity for me to use my passion to actually do something good. Um, and I, I still use I still use quite a lot of my of my IT degree. <laughs> so I actually started out, <clears throat> as mentioned, I started out um, with a Bachelor of Information Technology from Otago Polytech. Uh, so I graduated there back in 2010. Um, and even then, like during that degree, I remember having conversations with my lecturers about how I didn't know. I kind of had a, I kind of had an existential crisis halfway through it, and didn't know if I could if I could just work in an office for the rest of my life. Um, but with some support, I kind of got through. And even back then, I knew that I, I wanted to use my skills to actually kind of make a difference or, or use them to improve people's lives, essentially. Um, so I've managed, I went out, out into web development initially. Um, it was a great first job, an awesome first step in the door. But again, it was just like an office job. It was, it was a very good office job, but it was sitting at a computer all day, writing code. Mm -hmm. And while it kind of gave me a really good base of knowledge, it wasn't what, wasn't what I wanted to do long term. Um, so I actually, I ended up moving, moving from there to Otago University, and I worked there for a couple of years. Um, it was a bit more hands-on, a lot more kind of meetings, getting out and meeting people. And that's where I really started to work more on marketing, like marketing, social media, um, kind of a step, a step in the door rather than just pure IT. Um, and at this point, it was, I think it was 2014. I'd mentioned to Sam, I'd mentioned to Sam early on in the piece that I really wanted to just travel internationally and kind of see see places, other places in the world. Because I think like a lot of New Zealanders, we, we're kind of stuck at the bottom of the world. Um, most of our holidays tend to be to Australia, to the to the Pacific Islands. A lot of people do kind of the OE, but I really wanted to go out and see like see the world, see places that I wouldn't see otherwise. Um, and Sam mentioned that his his father was actually. I think you had him on here, right? You had him on mm -hmm. Bowen Bubble yeah. recently. Um, I saw the I saw his episode. Um, so the, yeah, Sam's father, John Mann. He he mentioned that he was living in Cambodia. Um, so I got in touch with him. When he came over to visit New Zealand, and we went out for lunch and had a chat, and it turned out they were they were running a, a tr upcoming trip with his Rotary group. They were going to see some projects in Cambodia. Um, so I, I managed to get in on that trip and went with them to Cambodia, um, which was the most terrifying thing I've <laughs> ever done, I think, because the, the, the only place I'd ever been, I'd been to Australia on holiday, but that was it. Lived in my, lived in Dunedin my whole life. Um, so I got on a, got on a plane by myself to to the Gold Coast um, to meet up with a bunch of Australians who I'd never met. And then we went on to, to Cambodia. Um, and it was it was amazing. Like it was it was just incredible. I fell in love with the country immediately. Like they, they talk about culture shock, but I'm not sure why, but I got off the plane and it was, I just immediately kind of felt at home from the moment I got off the plane. Um, and I remember maybe two or three days into the trip, we were sitting, at a hotel on the on the banks of the Mekong River in a place called Krache, which is kind of the north of Cambodia. And I remember telling John that I could definitely see myself living there and that I was going to go back to New Zealand and try and figure out a way to come back. Um, so that was 2014. And then two years later in 2016, when I was working at Otago University, um, I saw a job advertised by a big organisation in, in Cambodia that I'd been following on Facebook for a while called Cambodian Children's Fund. Um, for a communications, essentially a communications coordinator. Um, and it was well outside my my experience. <laughs> a lot of the description was, it was things I'd never done before, uh, but I figured I'm probably not gonna get this job, but I'll kick myself if I don't apply for it. 
Um, so I applied and and I got it. I was offered the position. So I got the phone call saying that I, I'd been offered it and moved to Cambodia four weeks later. Um, ended up, which was, it was incredible. Like it was, I mean, it was very sad, of course, saying goodbye to New Zealand permanently. Um, at that stage, I didn't know how long I was going to be gone. <clears throat> but it was other than the six months that I've just spent back in New Zealand because of coronavirus. That was the last time that I, I lived like properly permanently in New Zealand. Um, so yeah, I was in Cambodia working for a couple of nonprofits for, for three years with a very brief stint in Australia as well. Um, and actually the, the story of how I got my job at, at the small things is quite funny as well, because I applied for the role here and went right through the process, kind of got, got near the end. I'd had a few interviews. Um, and at that stage, there was an organization I was working with in, in Cambodia that was doing similar similar work. I was just volunteering, uh, volunteering with them. They were doing similar work to the small things, but at a very small scale. Um, and there were some kids that they were kind of trying to reunify at the time with their families. And I wanted to stick around to see that happen. So I got in touch with Becca and said that unfortunately I'd have to kind of, I'd have to withdraw my application and that I was still interested in working for the small things in the future, but. Um, and we said, we've just been preparing an offer letter for you. <laughs> That's such a bummer, but you know, we understand that that makes, I actually think I said that makes me want to hire you even more, but I also respect and understand why you got to do that. Yeah. Um, so we actually ended up hiring somebody else um, who turned out to show up, be here for a week, and then tell us that she didn't think she liked children enough to continue in the role. So we were like, you know what? I think this is probably not a good fit then. I think, I think you're right. Um, and two hours later, I got an email from Josh yep. saying... Uh, yeah. oh, I, was just, I kind of got to the point where... Um, all of my commitments had finished up in Cambodia, and I thought just just on the off chance, I will email them and just say, "This is the deal. You know, I'm free now. I'm looking for work. If if you've got anything, I love the organisation. I love the sound of it. If you've got anything available, I'll come and I'll come and work for you." Um, and I got a very ecstatic email back <laughs> saying, basically saying, "When can you start?" Um, Shut up, you're hired. Yes. <laughs> so, what is it that keeps you there? You've both you've both made a big effort to get back. Well, um, my particular uh, my yeah my my particular main influence is uh, my daughter Zawadi right here, and my son Simon um, who's in the other room. Uh, so you know, here he is, he's coming. So in addition, obviously, to being here for for work, um, I ha we had to be it takes about at least three years uh, to. <laughs> <laughs> it takes at least three years to do complete an adoption uh, as a foreigner in Tanzania. Um, so, so regardless, so actually uh, when I was in London, um, I was studying at the London School of Economics, studying international development uh, when I met my husband. And on our first date, I said, so P.S., I have these two kids in East Africa and also I'm moving there in about 18 months and if that's a deal breaker for you i completely understand you know here's your out go ahead i won't be offended it's fine um and uh and he ended up you know coming out to meet them and and then deciding to come along for the ride uh <laughs> so um yeah so so it was a uh, uh i i 
I have been back and forth between the US and Tanzania uh, for most of the last seven to 10 years. Um, I always have to be in the US at some points to speak with donors. Uh, we feel very strongly about our, our programs being run and managed by Tanzanian staff. Uh, but as you know, there's still times where as the, the fundraiser and as the person handling the budget and, and kind of dealing with all that stuff, obviously, you know, I need to be here on the ground too. Uh, so it's a, it's a combination, but um, we really love it here. It's, it's an amazing place to raise kids and an amazing place just to, to live. Let's take the second of the music you sent us. Let's have Yemi Aladi, Nakupenda. Since you came into my life, baby, you've given me so much joy. I'm feeling like a child, baby. I want to be your toy, boy. You tell me jump, I go jump. You tell me dance, I go dancing. You tell me skip to my loop. Anything to be with you.
Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokunui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha nui, kia koutou, kata hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars, in your beloved universes. And I really hope wherever you are and whatever is happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day. Who you are, the triumph of nature's are perfect, unique and here making things better. Thank you. So as we all know, we are free again. We've moved from lockdown level four, level three, level two, level one, level two, level 2.5, level three, level 2.5, level two, level one, and now we're free again, which is so exciting. And of course, for all of us, this journey has brought forth different aspects of ourselves, maybe some of which we weren't aware that we possess. There are new aspects of ourselves that have come forward. And I'm sure for all of us, we have had times of great challenge, great pain, great grief, great suffering, great darkness. We've had a sense of feeling lost. We've had a sense of not knowing that we possess those skills that we need but actually of course we do and so i hope that for all of you moving through these different states being you can now feel a sense of great pride and great accomplishment a great sense of your own emotional resilience and emotional skill set that you always have that's always with you and of course as a species of animal we are so innately adaptable we're so innately nurturing and we wouldn't be here we wouldn't have co-evolved with all life we wouldn't have arrived as the incredible miracle that we are without this process of overcoming challenges without this process of caring for one another helping each other through growing together so as we know i now find myself adventuring on a solo scale throughout my life beautiful harvey penfold headed away up north have adventures up there and my whole house the woman mansion is filled with light and sunlight today beautiful and i have a real sense of freedom and a real sense of spaciousness and expansiveness I have the woman mansion myself sunlight just streaming in on this stunned and sunned and funned and yummy and punned and auto portied and day and it's moving around the house illuminating beautiful treasures that are here and I just feel this great sense of joy to be in my own space and have all these wonderful moments in my life reflected back to me and I'm very grateful in my will mansion that I have many beautiful object treasures and particularly at the moment as I'm packing up 40 peka peka bird feeders for Maunga Kiki Songbird project up in Auckland there's a beautiful beam of light that's coming through Tamanui Otera illuminating a golden tea set and this golden tea set was gifted to me for emceeing the first gay wedding in Port Chalmers and this is many many years ago now and the beautiful wives that were married took me up shopping and said let's find you something nice that you really love found this beautiful golden tea set so of course it's made of some kind of metal it's gold plated it's got all these incredible jewels and gems and crystals encrusted on it it's just absolutely stunning it's up on my mantelpiece and it's it's beaming and beaming with light so I really hope that for all of you whatever shifts and changes are taking place in your life that you're also able to tune into that sense of space that is being created as these old ways of being move away there is that space there for you to move into and for the new to emerge into and I think we can really love and appreciate when light moves into a space that has dark and it illuminates all the potential all the possibility all the space all the creativity all of the potential for us in that space 
to grow ourselves. So I really hope that for you, you're having a lot of sunlight surrounding you today. You're having a lot of love and support surrounding you today. And you're able to reflect back on this time that we've had together and feel that sense of poho kereru, that sense of pride and accomplishment in all the ways that you have moved through this time and all the ways that you'll continue to grow. And I look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Thanks so much. We've seen lots of changes around the world over the last few months. What do you think is going to stick and what do you hope will stick? That's a tricky one. <laughs> we have seen we have seen so much so much around the world change. It's um it's really it's something that I, I think about it a lot because I often sit there and think how like, how did we kind of get to this? How did we how did this how did this happen? Um I think honestly there's gonna be a lot of a lot of the the hygiene stuff around COVID, I think now is going to become very, very standard. I think mm. even now um, in, in Tanzania, where there's kind of a wide belief that Corona is no longer here, we still see a lot of hand washing. We still see things like um, sanitizer everywhere. Not so much masks, but people have just got used to the idea of using sanitizer now. Um, I think for me anyway, sanitizer wasn't something I ever really used when I was younger. Um, we washed our hands, of course, but you don't even use sanitizer if you were, you know, going out, going out into the bush or going for a trek or somewhere where you didn't have access to water. Whereas I think sanitizing your hands now is going to become a very kind of regular common thing. Um, the other big thing I think, and especially for me, I've seen this working remotely. Mm. I think the idea of working remotely is going to become very, very common. And I think I've heard of a couple of New Zealand organisations that have completely closed their offices because when they went into lockdown and everything had to be done remotely they realized that it was working just as efficiently and if they just moved to a more remote model people would have a lot more freedom for where they lived and how they worked but also they would save on save on rent i think it's just going to become much more common and acceptable now to to work remotely which um i think i think it's great because i think there's so many people that have such great skills around the world that can't physically be where you want them to be when you're hiring, um, but they can still offer those skills. And if, if the, the kind of the structure is in place for that remote work, then you're really you're advertising to the world rather than just to your local community. In uh, mid-April, when they stopped official testing and reporting official numbers, um, the the government's position at that point was that coronavirus did not exist in Tanzania and did not need to be worried about. Um, fascinatingly, they seem to have been right about half of it. So it's been very, very interesting. Um, I, I'm, I'm a big sort of like uh, stats geek. This is, I love this stuff. Uh, so I've been reading a lot of papers and, and looking at the research that's been coming out. Um, and basically, Africa as a whole, even if you when you consider that some countries are not doing as much counting and you know and and that sort of and the demographics are different, even once you control for all of that, the rates of transmission and the severity of disease in Africa is a tiny fraction of what it is in other parts of the world. Um, we have done some antigen testing uh, here, so we know that it's passed through our community. Um, and everyone remembers, there was a, uh, I just say, oh, you remember when everyone got sick? Yeah, everyone got the flu at once. Some people had fever, some people had cough, you know, everyone got sick at the same time. Um, but 
but nobody stayed sick. Nobody had to be admitted to hospital. Nobody needed oxygen. Um, our our eighty something year old nurse who I was, you know, trying to. I was like, don't let her come into the office. I don't care for, but you know, <laughs> just keep keep her home. I was very worried about her. Not not a thing, you know. Sailed through it like it was nothing. So most of the studies right now are pointing towards exposure to. Uh, there's some evidence for malaria um, and the BCG vaccine, uh, but there's actually more evidence for um, low-level uh, viral diseases that are similar in some ways to coronavirus. Uh, so it's it's been really fascinating. They, for some reason, life is back to normal here for most people, um, and everybody seems to be fine. Uh, but that's because they're dealing with much, much, much less severe versions uh, when they do get sick than we're experiencing elsewhere. It seems to me to a degree as well that I think, like I think New Zealand definitely made the right choice when it came to lockdown. Um, but it seems like you need to go one in a hard direction one way or the other. Like New Zealand made the right choice because we could. We were kind of we had the privilege to completely lock down. And I mean, it's, it's had a very big negative effect on a lot of businesses. Um, there's definitely been negative effect from the lockdown but I mean the results kind of speak for themselves there's been so many so many New Zealanders that have kind of come through it out the other end a very very small number of infections even like this the second the second uh, lockdown that New Zealand has just had I, I'd heard you've just gone back to level one now um, everything seems to be great there here it was kind of the opposite where they knew they could never do that because so many people here are subsistence living, they're, they're right on the knife edge of, of poverty, they're in poverty, they're on the knife edge of not having enough to feed their kids anyway. If they went into lockdown, if they couldn't visit the market and kind of have that face-to-face -face interaction, that bartering, they would have just, more people would have died, I think, from, from lockdown than from the virus. So they didn't have that as an option. Um, so what they've seemed to have done here is they've gone hard the other direction, which is it doesn't exist, live life as normal, everything's open, it's going to rip through the country, which I think probably did around April or May, but then it's going to be over quickly. Um, it's definitely not, not an option I would recommend for a country like New Zealand that <laughs> has the other option, but I think for a country like Tanzania, honestly, it was probably the best option they had, um, because the alternative is what we've seen in a lot of countries where you're in that middle ground between the two, where you're, you're simultaneously destroying the economy and not keeping people safe. Um, so I think Tanzania has actually. I, I think Tanzania got very lucky. They did. Frankly. Yeah. I think I think infected carnage was was a lot worse. Probably, I don't think it would have been a defensible approach. I think still an approach defense in a country with so much subsistence living. Um, but I think really lucky that death and complication rate is just so, so, so low here. Because I'm coming from Connecticut, which is in kind of a funny position. In the US, the states very much. Um, Connecticut was one of the first and most aggressive to lock down. And so we have actually controlled it pretty well, um, although people are still wearing that, you know, not, not like New Zealand because we're not isolated, you can't cut off the same way. Um, but there are a lot of other states in the US, like Josh said, are, are really suffering the worst of both worlds, uh, which, is, which is difficult to watch. I have some questions to end the show with and not very much time, so we shall have to be very quick. And I 
and you're down to no power, so we'll have to be doubly quick. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Ooh. Better have one. I don't know. There's so much exciting stuff. Um, we're actually, I would say the biggest thing is we're working right now on a coalition project, which is really aimed at expanding our reach across the country um, and transforming the way that orphaned and vulnerable kids and families are cared for. Um, so I would say that's the piece I'm most excited about. I, I love our kids. I love our work. But this is an opportunity to go make a really broad impact. Um, We're right. We're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in our team. What is the superpower that has got you both into the mansion? And I want to know each other's superpower. Ooh. Uh, any superpower on earth, if I could have um, any superpower. No, not if you can have. You do have. And I want to know I each other's. Okay, so, so I will say for Josh, I think okay. that it's, uh, a real strength of purpose. I think from the beginning, it's always been about how he can help and and uh, a real degree of unselfishness that you don't see very often. And that is has been a, a, a real super asset to the organization. And for Becker, it's, um, oh, this is, this is because I mean, essentially as the executive director, Becker makes, I wouldn't say, our staff, our local staff are incredible. They do a lot of the on-the-ground work, but Becca kind of holds everything together. Becca's the glue. Um, so I think it's really her ability to to keep everyone kind of moving in the right direction, um, to, to have many, many meetings every day, to keep on top of all the work, all of the different aspects of this organisation, and just do it all basically effectively and make it, making it all work, essentially. That's a superpower. <laughs> So do you consider yourself to be an activist? Uh, I consider myself to be a social justice worker. I don't know. I don't know what the right word is. Um, you know, my, my grandmother was a Holocaust survivor and, uh, and worked with orphan and vulnerable children her whole life and, and, you know, impoverished children. And I think I just I always knew I wanted to do something like that. I wanted to do something that made the world a better place. So I don't know exactly. I think activists, I tend to think more of advocacy and we're more involved in like getting your hands dirty. Mm. But uh, absolutely. But yeah. And I'm similar where I I'm an activist in that I believe strongly about a lot of things and I will happily stand up for them on mostly on Facebook these days because <laughs> a lot of my friends talking about these things aren't with me in the country. Um, but I also only have a certain amount that I can give each day and I'm so kind of involved now on the ground that often I find myself barely even opening social media. Like I get home, I might get home at nine o'clock after spending some time up, up at work and then I'll just, you know, read a book and then go to sleep. I, I wish I had more time for the real act, like kind of hands-on activism, but I think the work we're doing here takes up so much of it at the moment that I have to just kind of promote my, my beliefs. That's yeah. about it. Yeah. It's the starfish thing, and it goes back to the name of the organization. We say, uh, it comes from a Mother Teresa quote, uh, we know that we can do no great things, only small things with great love. Um, and that's it. You know, we mm. do our small things, right? We, we can't always do the big picture, but we do our, our small things where we can. Absolutely. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? My biggest piece of advice is actually um, 
I think pretty important and, and something that's becoming more broadly known across the field. Uh, if you want to work in this in this field, if you want to do this, don't start your own nonprofit if you can possibly help it. Um, I, I tried very hard not to before realizing that there was nobody that was willing to take us on as a wing, and and so that was the only choice. But uh, but work together, you know, bring bring two people together, work across your field because we're stronger together than apart. Josh. Um, in, a, in a similar vein, because I started out, I started out as a volunteer, and I didn't know a lot of the stuff. If you want to volunteer internationally, which I know a lot of people do, especially in New Zealand, um, the idea of kind of travelling the world and volunteering is really appealing. Um, just make sure that the organisations you're volunteering for are ethical and do your research. Uh, there are so many out there now that don't necessarily have the best, especially with organisations that work with kids. They don't have the kids' best interests at heart, whether that's intentional or they just don't really know the damage that they're doing. Um, so do your research, look up like the pros and cons of volunteerism. One way you can do that is by going to thesmallthings.org and reading some articles we have linked about ethical volunteerism uh, and volunteering there. Absolutely. It's, Thank yeah, you. That's Thank you. That's really important. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> Moera. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I've just been on the website at uh, thesmallthings.org and had a look at um, about uh, what you're doing and was horrified to read that 80% of the children that you're supporting, their mums died in childbirth. Like, that is just, that blew my mind. And yeah. I'm so... It's varied over I am so acutely yeah. aware of my privilege right now of being in this country and having all the support around me and that never being a thing that entered my mind. Um, it was super easy to make a donation to you guys. I just did it in about 30 seconds to see what the process was. Go on the website, um, click on the uh, donate now, there's buttons everywhere and um, $20 to feed a child for a week. I mean, that's nothing, eh? And I just, I really admire what you're doing and thank you for this commitment that you've made to, you know, making life, making a life for these children. You're amazing. Ah, amazing. You, you got to come out and visit. Once all this is over and traveling again, you just got to come out and see it for yourself. Very well. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for that. Thank, thank you very you so much, much for joining for us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll play out to Diamond Putnam's with Ken Younger. You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. I'm Samuel Mann in Soyuz Bay, Dunedin, with Mawira Karatai in Fakatani, and from the Arusha in Tanzania, we've had Becca Ross Russell and Josh Lowry. We hope you enjoyed the show. Oh, yeah. Squeeze 
watu wanataka money so miki muita kuposti kanyaga kunitumia mipicha pigo gani eti basi den kuposti kabisa rusi kuchanga changa wakati mwenyewe na majanga sina godoro sina kitanda eti kuchangie kodi kwenda kupanga kama butila mugambo wafuruga mipango wase wa insta michambo Eti baby ni unge bando uzushi mashemu feka nuksi kudadadek mawifi paka maex nikosi oya kanyaga 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 Mona sanku wale wakuda wadaku kanyaga 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 This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.